0: This morning we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible in front of you. If I wrote it down right, it's going to be on page 814, Matthew chapter 9. In the third century, an Egyptian official recorded what he called the Gospel, the Good News, but in this case, he wasn't talking about Jesus. Instead, he was referring to the new emperor. Julius Verus Maximus had ascended to the throne. And so he used the word gospel to let the world know the good news of the new king. Hundreds of years prior to that, in the ninth century, we have an inscription to celebrate the new kingdom of Augustus Caesar Caesar. And the inscription is noting that they even altered the very calendar to line up with the birth of this new king. Listen to how the good news of Caesar is described. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit all humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings, the gospel for the world that came by reason, of him. These are the first recorded uses of the word gospel outside of the Bible. And they use it to describe the good news of a new kingdom. And Matthew has that same plan in mind to let us know that the kingdom has come. He even opens his gospel, titling it, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so right off the bat, he's signaling to us, to the observant reader, that this might be the man in whom those covenant promises to David, to Abraham, might be fulfilled. And Jesus goes on, he begins his public ministry, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But who is this new king? What's he like? Well, Matthew and our passage this morning is going to tell us exactly what our king is like. He's a king of compassion. And he's going to tell us this because God's compassion, Jesus' compassion, reveals some very important things to us, and one thing that might just change the very way you're planning to live your life. And so let's read our passage together. Matthew 9, we're going to be in verse 35 through ten fifteen, And then we'll consider four results Matthew wants us to see and know about Jesus' compassion. It's Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave this house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town." So we have from the very lips of Jesus the truth that a new kingdom has come. Over fifty times in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is mentioned. It always comes from the mouth of Jesus, except for one time in particular when the disciples are utterly confused and ask who's going to be the greatest one of them in the gospel, or excuse me, in the new kingdom. And so here in our passage we get this summary statement that Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching, healing every disease, healing every affliction, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. All the villages, all the towns, good news for everybody. Every disease, every affliction, a gospel for everyone, everywhere, overturning every effect of the kingdom of this world. But then he comes across this group of people, and he looks upon them, And he has compassion as they're harassed, they're helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so leading up to Matthew 9, to our verses, we get all these pictures of Jesus' compassion, healing and caring for people. But now Matthew just outright calls it what it is. Jesus has compassion. Why is Matthew showing us this? Well, first, it's because Jesus' compassion confirms his identity. Us. See, Matthew hasn't just been announcing the kingdom, he's been setting up a stark contrast between the kingdom of heaven and all the other kingdoms of this world, lesser kingdoms. You have the wise men seeking the one born king of the Jews, and so they come to Herod, the one who Rome called the king of the Jews. And Jesus' temptation, he's in the wilderness, and Satan shows him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. A few chapters later in Matthew 12, the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus of being a member of Satan's kingdom. And so the whole book, it's a tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And in Christ, the kingdom of heaven has broken into the world and is overcoming the world. And you'll remember again from the beginning of the book that Jesus is born in the line of David. And throughout the book Read it later. Jesus is regularly called the son of David. because Matthew wants to draw a connection from Jesus back to David when God made a promise to him, a covenant with him, a promise to set his offspring on his throne, a throne which would be eternal. Matthew wants us thinking, Could that? could this be the king? Could this be the promised Davidic king? And if you remember what it was that the the chief priests, the scribes, what passage did they go to when they were trying to figure out where this little baby king would be born? They go to Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And So he's coming as a king, a ruler. He's coming as a shepherd And here in Matthew 9, Jesus is looking out across the crowd and he sees sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless sheep. And you might often hear that sheep are dumb. That's a common thing that's said. But sheep aren't really dumb other than the fact that they're animals and all animals are a little bit dumb. In reality, sheep are vulnerable. When danger comes, they're defenseless. And so Jesus sees them being harassed. Jesus sees them being helpless, being led to the danger of false kingdoms, of lesser kingdoms, and they need a shepherd. And Jesus is moved with compassion toward them. We really don't even have a word in our language that captures the fullness of this word compassion that's in our Bible because it's a word only ever used in scripture to speak of Jesus. It's never used in connection with humans. It's a divine compassion beyond anything we could possibly feel in ourselves. This God-man is shaken to his very core with pity for these people. So you've got a shepherd king moved with compassion. Matthew's trying to shine a bright light on Ezekiel, 34 for us. And so turn in your Bible to Ezekiel 34. If you've got one of those pew Bibles, it's page 722. And as you're turning there, as you're finding it, just a little history to kind of catch us up on what's happening in Ezekiel. Almost 600 years before Christ, Ezekiel is one of the exiles taken taken to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this puppet regime with Zedekiah in charge. Zedekiah, he's actually in the line of David. He reigns for about a decade, but then he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar captures him and his sons. And then the very last thing that happens to Zedekiah, he sees his sons killed and then Nebuchadnezzar takes his eyes. His last vision is of the line of David being cut off. So they're in exile and no king. God's promises seem to have failed. But that's when God sends prophets, like Ezekiel. So look at, look at Ezekiel chapter 34. In verses 1 through 6, God indicts the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders, for their failure to shepherd his people. Look at verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed. The injured, you have not bound up. The strayed, you have not brought back. The lost, you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. The scattered sheep, no shepherd and danger for God's people. Verses seven and 10, then we have God's judgment on these shepherds for their failures. He holds them accountable for leaving the sheep without a shepherd. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I'm going to do this myself. God will rescue his people. It's so then in verses 17, 19, God pronounces judgment on the sheep. He's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And finally, in verse 20, excuse me, verse 23, we get this promise I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be my prince among them. I, the Lord, spoken. And then we get this covenant of peace, that they will know that he is the Lord their God, and that they, the house of Israel, will be his people. So the shepherds are judged for this sin. And God says, I will rescue my people. And he's going to appoint David to rescue his people. But David is dead, long since dead at this point. So how is God going to do it? I, I myself will do it and he will do it. I will appoint a shepherd king to do it. Well, It's both. Because the one that God sets upon the throne, the shepherd king's throne is himself, the incarnate son, the one born in the line of David, the true and better David. And so Matthew's drawing our attention to Ezekiel 34, because he's showing us the true identity of Jesus. He's God himself, the shepherd king who's come to pronounce judgment on the unrighteous, to seek out the harassed and helpless sheep, to draw them in, to care for them, to feed them, to protect them, to make them lie down in green pastures of peace. I even see he's sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, a further connection to Ezekiel 34 and God's promises to his people. His compassion, it was proves to us, proves to the readers that this long-awaited shepherd king, the Messiah, has come to care for God's people. Let's turn back to Matthew. and You can see Jesus doesn't just look upon the sheep and see their helpless state. No, his compassion it moves them to do something. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus turns from the crowds and he looks to his disciples I think about 12 here, but a large gathering of disciples. And he says, Look at the harvest. And he calls himself the Lord of the harvest. And so as we keep reading here, we're going to see that Jesus' compassion compels us to pray. Or excuse me, Jesus' compassion creates a harvest. See, in Scripture, a harvest is most often used for future judgment. And other times it's a metaphor for God's electing grace. But Jesus isn't looking at a crowd ready to be judged. And I don't think he's looking at it seeing only those who will repent and believe. He sees all the people in the crowd. He sees the full crowd. So I think he's seeing both, those who will repent and believe and those who will reject him as king and he calls himself the Lord of the harvest. So if the harvest is all the people in front of him, and he is Lord of the harvest, then he is emphatically calling himself the Lord over everything, over all these people, the true and rightful king over all. You remember his mission to every city, healing every disease, every affliction. God's, Jesus is doubling down on it, saying the kingdom of heaven will have no boundaries in this place. And he says, the harvest is ready. It's ready to be reaped. You don't pick fruit. You don't reap reap the wheat until it's ready. So Jesus sees these people and he says, they're ready. They're ready to hear. They're ripe to hear the good news of the kingdom. A compassionate king has come to save them from their sins. And so his salvation, the salvation he offers us, flows out of his heart of compassion. But it's his kindness, his compassion, that we even get to hear this good news. But don't think just for a moment that Jesus' compassion sets aside his holiness. You know We struggle with that, to have compassion and to have a righteous judgment upon Sin and, and certainly the world wants to say Christians can't have compassion and call something sin at the same time. But in this tale of two kingdoms, Christ has come to redeem sinners, to call sin what it is, and to rescue them from that kingdom. His, his holiness is what makes his compassion so sweet, so precious to us. And so Jesus' compassion has created a whole harvest of people in desperate need of this good news, a world of people who don't yet know that the kingdom of heaven has come in Christ Jesus. And it's at that point he presents a problem for us. Let's keep reading back in verse 37. So he says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so he looks upon these people with compassion, ready to hear the good news, and he's got a simple math problem. One he solves with prayer because Jesus' compassion compels us, as I said a minute ago, to pray. You know, there's a a variety of ways when we're thinking about global missions. This is Global Outreach Week, so we're thinking global mission of God. And there's a variety of ways we could talk about global missions. And in the past, Christians have often used things like nation states to think about the people of the world, using borders and governments to talk about the world around us. But in the last many years, we've realized that people and culture are much more complex than that. So you'll often hear a term called, like, people group. In 1982, there was a a group of people met in Chicago, and they defined a people group like this. They said, for evangelization purposes, a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church-planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. So, the largest group of people you can gather together have something uniting them, until you hit a barrier of understanding or acceptance. So most of the time, that barrier is language. I was in Indonesia this year, and I don't speak any Indonesian or Malay, and so I could not be the one to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to them. In other places, it's a socioeconomic barrier. If you think about India and the caste system, there's a barrier to being able to reach certain people with the gospel. Or sometimes it's the remoteness of the people. If you were with us Monday night and you watched the Ends of the Earth film, you saw that sometimes it takes building an insane runway on the side of a mountain just to be able to reach a tribe with the good news of heaven. So ultimately, really, words like people group, in other words, it's just a way to help us understand people and how to overcome the barriers to their understanding and their response the gospel. And our aim statement, when we talk about global missions here at Heritage, we say our aim is to proclaim Christ in order to establish reproducing indigenous churches among the world's least reached people. So when we say least reached, we're using people group type language to talk about people who have no known or extremely few missionaries or churches among them who can share the gospel. There's still significant barriers of language or understanding or culture keeping them from being able to hear and respond to the gospel, like the Rio Malayu, where we talk about 2 million people, 2,000 islands, and a dozen or so at most missionaries there. That's harvest that's plentiful and laborers that are few so Jesus looks out across the people and sees a plentiful harvest with few labors. He's drawing another stark contrast, the great multitude versus the few. By some estimates, a fourth of the world today has a significant language or cultural barrier so high that there are no known believers or churches among them able to share the gospel with them a fourth of the world. That's almost two billion people. A majority of those living in India and Muslim-majority countries in Asia and Africa. What do we do in the face of that? Two billion people. Well, if you ask me, we start sending people to seminary. We start an elective class. Everybody's learning Malay or, or Hindi or Arabic this year. We're going to start fundraising. This is going to cost some money to get people there and to keep them there. those are maybe all good ideas in due time, but Jesus says to do something else. He overwhelms us with the task, and then he says, pray. But he doesn't use the normal word for prayer. It's a word for prayer that carries with it urgency. It carries with it desperation. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, so pray urgently. The labors are few, so pray desperately for the Lord of the harvest to send labors into his harvest. Because when we understand who Jesus is, that long-awaited shepherd king, when we understand that he looks upon us with compassion, when we understand what he has done for us, we're compelled to pray urgently and desperately that the Lord of the harvest might declare his name among the nations. When our compassion for the harvest is aligned with Jesus' compassion, we pray earnestly. When we understand his holiness and the problem of sin and that there is only one answer to that problem, we pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, pleading with God to have his compassion declared to the whole world. In 1886, James Fraser was born the third son of Annie Palmer. He was a uh, engineer with a bright future ahead of him. He was an accomplished pianist. He was a very eligible bachelor in his day. But when he was 22, he left England for China. He was there primarily to share the gospel with the Lisu people. He was the first one to put their language into writing, first one to translate the Bible, into their language and share the gospel of the kingdom with this people of southern China. But for the moment, the hero of this story is not James, it's his mom. It's Annie. Because she had a great love for Christ and for his global mission, such that in her schooling, she was regularly talking about the advancement of the kingdom of God to the nations. So on the day that James leaves England, knowing the work, knowing the place that her son is headed to, knowing there's a high likelihood that she won't see him again on this side of eternity, she gives him a note that, among other things, says this, I am the happiest woman in London today. Why is she so happy? because years earlier in her diary, she wrote this, I could not pour the ointment on Jesus' blessed feet as Mary did, but I gave him my boy. And James would spend his life not only for the Lisu people, but explaining the fact that he was there. His sending to China was a direct result of his mother's prayers. The Lisu people heard the gospel because Christ heard the prayers of a mom. So God hears and joyfully answers his prayers. Look look at chapter 10, verse one again. He says, and he called to him. It's almost one sentence. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, and he called to him. Urgent prayer for laborers comes with an urgent answer from our God. You know, as a result of Jesus' compassion, I pray that some of you this morning will realize you're living in the wrong place because Jesus' compassion compels some of us to go. It commissions some of us to go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the nations. It says, he called to him his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. then he names the the 12 apostles. He says, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus had been speaking to his disciples, a large group, but now he calls to himself 12 of those Disciples. And this is the first time Matthew collects these 12 as a particular unit. And he calls them the 12 apostles. Later on, that word's going to become a a technical word, a title for an office. But that's not the way Matthew's using it here. He's using it in a very simpler but connected way as a sent one. So we had prayer to send out. When he said send out, that carried with it the idea of removing. So remove from something and then send to something. The general idea being pray that God would remove from among you disciples a people to be sent into the harvest. Let's look for a moment at the mission of these 12 in particular, because he calls them together and he gives them authority over the kingdom of this world and the impacts of its reign cast out demons, heal diseases. Jesus was healing every disease, every affliction in verse 35. Now in verse one, the 12 are healing every disease, every affliction. They're sent with his authority. They're given the same power to display the power of the kingdom. And they go with the same proclamation. Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is, Is at hand. Tell them the same thing I've been saying to them. One main work, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The power to heal is a supportive work, displaying the power, proving the truthfulness of their proclamation. And they go with the same pay. Verses 8 through 10 You received without giving, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics, or sandals, or staff, or the laborer deserves his food. The good news came to you freely, so freely give it away. It's a free gift of God's grace flowing from his compassion. And he, he adds that the laborer deserves his food. Or other, other translation says the worker is worthy of his keep. The laborer is going to get his wages. God is going to care For his needs. So, just a note this doesn't mean we shouldn't pay missionaries or other gospel laborers, because Paul's going to pick up on this same language later and use it to say gospel laborers should be paid for their work. But he changes a little bit of how we think about this. We aren't paying them for a service. You aren't paying me a set amount for this sermon this morning as if you've come here to buy a product from me today. Rather, you're the means by which God has freed me up from certain care so that I might devote myself fully to this work. Do you see the difference in there? A laborer's salary, a gospel laborer's salary, isn't payment for services rendered, but freeing him from certain financial burdens so that he can freely dedicate himself to the free offer of the gospel. And you all are generous and faithful in doing that for all the gospel laborers that we love together. So same power, same proclamation, same pay, and same response. If that bothers you, you can capitalize the P in the word response in there just to have full alliteration between those words. Proclamation, pay, power, and response. Verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The pious Jews, upon re-entering the promised land, would shake the dust off of their feet. It was a symbolic way of rejecting everything that was pagan. And so for Jesus to apply that same practice to them while they're remaining in Jewish territory would have been shocking to them. As if a, a Jewish home doesn't accept your proclamation of the kingdom of heaven, treat them as pagans. It's not their ethnic connection that welcomes them into the kingdom of God. It's their response to Jesus. One people of God, one way into the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ. And he says it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those people. Sodom and Gomorrah, these symbolic figureheads of the deepest of perversions, the greatest of wickedness, everything that's wrong with the kingdom of this world is summed up in the words Sodom and Gomorrah, but they'll have it better that day than those who reject Jesus. Such is the claim and the need for the gospel. There are those who are in Christ and those who will reject him So pray earnestly for laborers to be sent out to proclaim the compassion of our king. And simply put, you cannot pray for laborers to go into the harvest without being confronted with the question, am I one of those laborers? You cannot obey Jesus' command to pray for laborers. You cannot understand Jesus' compassion for sinners without wondering, am I one of those laborers? So how do you know? We often frame that question with the the words, am I called? Briefly here, just a few ways that calling is talked about in Scripture. There's a a general call of the gospel, like we see here in Matthew 9, but even later in Matthew's gospel, in, in chapter 22, when Jesus would say, many are called, but few are chosen. A general free offer of the gospel for everyone. Proclamation to all. Scripture talks about an effectual call. Romans 8, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Some are divinely enabled to respond to that general call. You've got a call to holiness. 1 Peter, he who called you is holy, you also be holy. We're called to a life of holiness. There's a, a providential type call in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is saying, stay in the general life circumstances, knowing that God is with you there. Wherever you are, be there now, knowing that God is with you. But it's, it's general, broad, the type of work you're in, whether you're a bond servant or free, whether you're married or not. And a few times we have an apostolic type call Men called to a particular office that only Christ could put them into. And so asking, am I called to be a gospel laborer to the nations, just doesn't really match the biblical language. But maybe even worse than that, it puts you in a completely passive spot. I'll keep doing what I'm doing now until I'm called. I don't feel anything, so I must not be called Or I'm called, who are you to say I'm not called? So rather than wondering today, am I called? What if we processed it the way Jesus' compassion teaches us to process it? I know that the kingdom of heaven has come in Christ Jesus. And I know that the king is compassionate, that he saves sinners, that his compassion has saved sinners. Me, I know the Lord of the harvest has a plentiful harvest and few laborers. Therefore, in what way will the king use my life for the proclamation of the gospel? I know all these things to be true. Therefore, how will the king use my life? It might be spending your eternal, your entire life an earnest, urgent, desperate prayer to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. It might be training and raising up future church planters from among us. It might be learning to fly an airplanes so you can get the gospel to those remote places like we saw in that film. It might be going to support a church planter, teaching their kids, providing medical care to them so that way they can be the ones doing the translation, the proclamation work. It might be doing Bible translation, learning other languages that we might put the good news into their language. It might be that heritage affirms and, and trains and sends you out of this place that you go and be the one to proclaim the gospel and plant a church among the nations. You know, Maybe like Annie Palmer, perhaps it's your child that's the answer to that prayer. Perhaps you are the answer to that prayer. So let's pray, praising God for his compassion and praying that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers from heritage and from other churches to declare his compassion among the nations. You pray with me now. Lord, we gather this morning to declare your compassion to us. To praise you and thank you. Because while we were yet sinners, while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. God, what amazing pity you would have. What great love, what great... Mercy. And Lord, your kingdom has come and is coming and will one day come in its fullness. And on that day, there will be those who are in Christ and those who are not. And so until that day comes, Father, send out laborers. The harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. And it is your harvest, God, your compassion for the nation. And so align our hearts with yours. God, stir us up and send us out from this place that your name and your kingdom might reach to the very edges of the earth and that your glory might fill every inch of the earth to the praise of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.